I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Mark Gibbons. As a young man, Mark took a poetry workshop at his high school, led by James Welch, an excellent writer you may or may not know. And Welch, Mark says, gave him permission to write poetry in his own voice, out of his own life experiences. So we're going to learn something about that today. Now, Mark's published numerous books, including a collaborative collection with an Appalachian poet, Michael Revere. And Appalachia is pretty far from Montana, so that's an interesting, uh, interesting combination there. And in 2013, he received the Artist Innovation Award from the Montana Arts Council. And his most recent collections are available at foothillspublishing.com. Foothills Publishing, like one word, dot com. And he lives and teaches in Missoula, Montana, in the Missoula Writing Collaborative. So, hey, Mark, I'm so glad you're here. I love talking to people on the other side of the country and who know something about James Welch. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, James Welch, of course, you know, changed my life because, you know, growing up in a in a in a small town uh, back in the late '60s and early '70s in high school, I mean the poetry you were exposed to just new new poets were starting to be you were starting to be exposed by English teachers, but mostly it was just the old English and American verse that you know I mean uh, from Robert Frost on back kind of uh, experience that you got in school. And when the Arts Council made available this program of putting an artist in the school and they brought James Welch as the guy, nobody knew who he was, of course. He was at that time working, uh, trying to compile a book of poems. And so all of the poems that he was dealing with, uh, you know, uh, in my first hard springtime in Harlem, just off the reservation, and all these poems he would use as models uh, in in sharing his stuff with us. And it was like, wow, you know, uh, this is, he's writing about Harlem, Montana and Browning, Montana. And uh, he just a, a, a kind of a, a, a half Indian kid, half white kid, but I mean, you know, totally a, a, a Native American poet for the most part, uh, trying to work on putting a book together, which was wound up being his, his one and only collection of poetry writing the earth boy 40 and uh so listening to those poems and telling us that we could uh write out of our own experience i was just like opening a, a whole new world of possibilities because i mean i really believe everybody is a poet in a sense everybody spends all this time in their head and that's what poets do but most people don't write that stuff down, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and he gives permission to do that. And, and you just keep doing it and you keep messing around with words and you get a little craftier as time goes along. You, you just never stop if you love it. And, uh, and that's why I fell in love with it because of that, because of Jim Welch. And, you know, it's really encouraging because so many poets are going out to so many classrooms. Yeah. But even just hearing you as like one case study of, 
Yeah. That visit to the classroom, that time he spent there, totally right. changed your life. Yeah. And introduced and, you to the whole world. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and I'm, I've been, you know, lucky enough having, uh, I, well, I decided, you know, uh, I don't I, for, I had like a midlife crisis. I mean, I, I've been a poet all of my life, but I never, I never had the courage to call myself a poet until I was in my forties. I was writing and, and, you know, doing things, gifting people, shit like this, the poems yeah. I wrote, but, uh, I, I didn't uh, really think of myself as a poet. I was, you had to have a job. You had to, you know, do your everything else. But my, I kind of had a midlife crisis. <laughs> In, uh, right. in the uh, in the early 90s and uh and my father died basically mm. and uh and my father was uh he was a great guy but he was also an alcoholic and all of the all of the the, the benefits of that scenario that you grow up with uh you never quite get rid of and one of the things of course he did in his life was i think he was a writer i mean from what i understand mm. when he was young he was a super smart guy, super well read, and I think he wanted to probably write because he was mm. such a voracious reader. And uh, he was the one that first exposed me to poetry, in a way. He used to read Robert Service out loud to us, you know, when <laughs> I was a kid. You know, God Almighty, I fell in love with that shit. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The Northern Lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, I, I do that now. The hair stands up on my arm still. When I heard that as a kid, you know, so, so anyway, what, you know, my dad sacrificed all of his interest, I think, in, in being a writer and whatnot to take care of his family. Just got more and more sort of angry, frustrated. I mean, alcohol was yeah. always there. And uh, so, you know, he, uh, he sacrificed his life to put shoes on his kids' feet and became a bitter old drunk. And uh, I thought, I don't want to do that for my kids. You know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah. that's not a gift to give to your kids. You should learn from the past. That's what your parents do for you is they teach you. you right. And so I, I just, I was teaching high school and I just re didn't renew my contract and I applied to graduate school. And luckily I got into the university of Montana graduate writing program and started oh, taking poetry more seriously you know mm -hmm. started studying prosody uh really started studying the line and and uh, and and just getting the craft that's all i wanted i i didn't i wasn't delusional that i was going to get a job teaching creative writing at rutgers or some goddamn thing <laughs> i just wanted to spend two years studying the craft and, and really working on on being a better poet and then mm -hmm. I lucked out again. I've just been, I'm a lucky guy, I think. I, I lucked out again by falling into this Missoula Writing Collaborative that did the same thing Jim Welch did. They put uh -huh. poets in the schools. And I've been teaching kids poetry in the schools for over 25 years in Missoula and across the state through the Arts Council. And, and, and it's the same. Right. 
I get verklempt just talking about it because <laughs> it's a really important job. You can see it in these kids, you know, the same way that happened for me, it happens for them. in all these different kids, yeah. you know. Oh, that's great. So that's my testimonial. There. All right. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, I think we should hear a poem. Well, you know, th this poem is, is in the new book. And, uh, you know, in regard to all of that that I just kind of said and your introduction with Jim Welch, I'm going to read this thing. It's in this, in this new book of poems called uh, Mostly Cloudy, which is a beautiful little collection that uh, Foothills Publishing did. And it's full of, uh, of some images of a friend of mine who's a, who's a photographer inside also. Oh, yeah. So it's, I like that, that addition of, of uh, photography to, uh, to poetry. This poem is called uh, Just Off the Interstate, if you remember Harlem, Just Off the Reservation. When I first heard that Harlem poem, not Langston Hughes, but the one Jim Welch wrote about Harlem, Montana, just off the reservation, I knew I could sing a booze anthem for my own kin, those lost whiskey boys trying to kill old ghosts and resurrect broken souls. Seals marooned on the rocks of an unending storm justify why there is no good reason not to say, fuck it, join in, chase the pain away of not knowing and of parading once again down the street in green, grinning like St. Patrick blessing poverty and shame licking that bipolar lollipop of blarney and hate black blood bottled and blunt as a bleeding cunt distill pissy about last night's shattering glass drunk as welch's indian bucks who broke in and shot the grocery up before locking themselves inside to pass out rich as white men. We <laughs> laugh because we laugh. That's what we know how to do. We don't know another way. So God, any God, the God damned and the God blessed, why in hell do we still swill your blood? I woke up when I read that Harlem poem, although it was years before I gave up drinking my way into blackouts and blaming all troubles on God or money or the fucking Brits. One day I awoke to the power of songs and dreams, my need to tell the stories of my tribe, like Bobby Harrington's appendicitis scar, a knife wound carved by a butte high punk in the parking lot of the Marcus Daily. No cops, no hospital. 20 years later, a poison pocket burst in his gut. He died watching Bullwinkle on TV. Or Martin Murphy's January breakfast inside his little trailer, sitting stone stiff as St. Anthony, head bowed, blue gray, but still gripping his jug of Walker's 10 high on the kitchen table. Cup of coffee frozen solid in the sink. That Harlem poem made me think maybe words, stories were a way out of 
and a way into living, into giving up the bar stool in my head, that role passed down by the fathers of the fathers, those survivors of the bogs and fogs of the old sod. You know the tale, those sad heroes, stumbling, mumbling, falling down drunks, and yet another rendition of that Irish masterpiece. You can't kill me, yet even bastards. I'm already dead. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, that, what, a, what a beautiful uh, demonstration of, of uh, finding your voice bouncing off of, uh, of Welsh. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. It, it, you know? it, it, I mean, if, if you're trying to tell a, a, a little tale of, of, uh, of, of the broken glass, you know, <laughs> that, that, that rattles around in your noggin, uh, there's a lot of uh, hard edges to stuff, you know, I mean, mm. I, I don't know, there's, there's no way around that. And uh, I mean, I've, I, I write all kinds of different sort of things, I mm. think, you know, but uh, I, I, a lot of those come out anytime I, I, I venture into that, that territory. And sometimes they're kind of hard to hear. As my wife always told me, you know, in, in readings, it's like, Jesus, why don't you let up on some of that? Stuff, you know? <laughs> why don't you read some some lighter stuff? Maybe why a not? funny poem. <laughs> well, I was going to mention actually a little uh, how when you write when you're writing a poem, and it's this kind of content. But there are so many options, and little light things can slip in, like Bullwinkle. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and, and right. I, I mean, Bullwinkle popped out with all this is going on. Watching Bullwinkle. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And you know, yeah. you're writing the poem, you could have him watch anything you want. You know, he was not watching the evening news. No, no. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, he, yeah. and, and he was a, I mean, a, a, you know, he's kind of a based on a, on, on a real character. Uh, and, uh, oh, he is based on a real character. Mm -hmm. and, and that guy was really funny. I mean, he was just a stand up comic, you know. Mm. And, uh, and, and Bullwinkle would be his style. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Another another detail I just really grabbed me was the the coffee frozen in the oh, sink. Was it in the sink when it was in the cup? It was frozen. Right. Was, Whoa, that really. Yeah, it's how it's interesting to me how a particular detail can really pop. You know, your vision of the whole scene or of of what's going on. Right. Yeah, I, I uh, think of. Uh, I think of so many of, of those people, you know, I mean, I, you're growing up in a small town, you know, absolutely everybody in the, and the social hub, you know, there's either the church or the bar and, uh, and, and so many people died of, of hypothermia, of exposure, you know, uh, mm. from alcohol intoxication and not having a place to go, like crawling in the back of a car or, or, or example, example of someone who's in a trailer house somewhere and they just run out yeah. of fuel and they just sit there and drink and it, it yeah that's it yeah the, the 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 cold front i mean because you know it can drop to 20 to 30 below pretty damn easy uh in the winter here so that's that happens, that happens. yeah yeah well well be 
do another poem. This is good. Very sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Wonderful. Wonderful. You can be as serious as you like. Well, and this one, <laughs> thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, Anything. I, and of course, in these situations, there's way too many things to, to choose from. And I never know exactly. Yeah. But I, I thought of this off the top of my head. Uh, it's it's called, uh, it's, it's out of a book that uh, Michael did uh, also at Foothills. And that's a Lee Nye, the photographer, who's quite a quite a famous photographer here in our neck of the woods, did that portrait. The title of the poem is uh, Christmas Hell. I can't even find time to write the irrelevant, irreverent form letter, for Christ's sake, let alone wax poignantly about peace and joy, chestnuts or snow, those memories of slow-mo, dark mornings we danced across freezing wood floors to dig for socks and long johns in dresser drawers, bedroom window panes glazed in ice. We'd run to the living room, shiver up to the oil stove, smell coffee, bacon cooking in the kitchen, listen to larch kindling crackle, the trash burner roar, Mother's slippers scuffling the linoleum floor. Dishes clattered as we buttoned and tugged, pulled on our clothes, hypnotized by the glow of icicles and colored bulbs, silhouetting the fir tree we'd cut down up Madison Gulch. The literal presence of wonder in our black and white eyes. An evergreen rainbow topped with a blue star. It was our chromatic invitation to dream. There you go. Christmas present. <laughs> Christmas present, that's nice. <laughs> Christmas in July. Yeah. We'll take it, yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> oh, yeah, here's something I want to ask you about. How, how'd you happen to hook up with a guy in Appalachia to uh, collaborate on that project? With, uh, well, with your with your buddy Michael Revere, yeah, that's a that's a, a pretty interesting story because uh, I uh, my son who uh, uh, my my one my oldest son who I just spent the last four days with uh, you know fishing and stuff they managed to sneak out of Seattle and get over here and find an Airbnb and enough social distance to go out fishing and and so we had a really good uh, a good time over the last few days but he's a He's a research scientist. He's got his own lab out in Seattle, and he, but he's just a smart, I don't know, you know, maybe the postman was involved. I'm not sure, but he's just a super, super smart kid, right? And one of the things he did, I and mean, one of the degrees he got in the whole process of getting this massive amount of education um, was he took a, a, a BA in French along the line too, while he was doing science BAs and whatnot. And, for his project, his thesis project, he took a, a book of my poems and translated it into French with the help of his French professor. And uh, so I had this translation, and we and the French uh, professor thought it was you know a really good translation. And being you know Montana stuff, these kind of Western stories, yeah, right. that the French love that stuff. So you should okay. see that that over there and so we did and this uh, this french publisher uh, uh put together this book 
of uh, of poems. It's and it's great because it's a uh, you know it's a uh, both uh, English and French. You know, it's matching uh, uh, bilingual or whatever sort of thing. And uh, anyway, in the process of uh, getting his French degree, Michael Revere was living in Helena, Montana, and he had never finished his his uh, BA, his, you know, he dropped out of school when he was quite a bit younger or whatever. And so he came back to try to finish and get his degree. Yeah. And the only thing that was holding him back was a foreign language class. <laughs> and, and he was really struggling with it. And, uh, and he met Sean in, in the class. And, uh, and so they got to chatting kind of, and, and he told Sean that he was a poet and Sean said, Oh, my dad's a poet too. You know, and it's like, so anyway, one thing led to another. We, I met him and, uh, and then he, uh, they both kind of went through the graduation process together. And so we were able to, and in that whole deal, Michael thought, well, why don't we do a book together? And, uh, and so that's kind of where all that came from. And so we got together and, and, uh, and put together this uh, book of poems that, uh, yeah, like right. War, Madness, and Love. And well, it was because it was right around, uh, it was Iraq War time, right? Yeah. And we were both vehemently uh, anti war, uh, and most poets sure. are, I would yeah. think. And, <laughs> and so we, we put together this book of kind of anti war poems or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. All right, and he's back in the East Coast, I presume. Then he's back in. The... I don't really know what, uh, what, where he's at. He may still be in Helena, or oh. or he may be back east again. I'm not really oh. sure. I lost track of him, or or he lost kind of lost track of me, which is another uh, another story in and of itself. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah, I, it's I, easy uh, to do. People yeah, exactly. around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I, well, let's get back to to a poem here. Well, do uh, you, you wanna do you wanna uh, uh, hear a poem I wrote for Michael uh, to get to get us give you a sort of a portrait? It's 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 in this book, and uh, sure. I mean this is the one time I did a reading with a friend of mine uh, lives over in Bozeman, actually, great mm -hmm. teacher, yeah. uh, great poet, and uh, and we and we just did this this ping pong kind of a reading, mm -hmm. right? One guy would read one thing, and oh man, that reminds me of. So here you go. This is a. This is a poem for Michael Revere. It's called Salt of the Earth. It's buried in the Appalachian mountains, beats the rhythm of native drums into rock and roll. Its roots pushes through a crack, through soil on low, low peak overlooking Missoula, Montana. It's the seed of a supernova, an idea that knows it's here matter spinning, whirling into itself, feeling its way past and feeling its way past the need for a crucifixion, past the need to proclaim a big bang. It's found peace in the night janitor's bare feet, secretly stepping out on the cold marble floor in the main lobby of the Newport Hotel. This voodoo child, spray bottle of ammonia in one hand and quart jug of bleach in the other, punches the play button on his portable cassette radio, begins spinning into Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. 
arms extended, the centrifugal force of spray bottle and jug, a dynamic counterbalance that urges him on and on in an effortless dance of inertia-like perpetual motion. This broom jockey spins himself into his own swirling Sufi trance a dance beyond the marble columns and leather chairs, beyond the time clock or the graveyard shift, even beyond his blurring dervish spiral, beyond intention. There is something, a joy through our feet pattering the earth, something that exists at the core of all things, and particularly in the heart of a hippie custodian, probably high on more than momentum and peace. It is in the music and the marble and the motion. It is in the quantum experience of mind. And he spins for more than five minutes. He spins for way more than 10 or 15. He spins himself out of and back into the world where he spins for the cops and firemen staring at him through the lobby window. An off-duty impromptu sidewalk audience watching this goofy Windex ballet. He spins for Little John, the security guard, grinning in the shadows. He spins for his wife, pregnant with their first. He spins like a 10-year-old kid on the backyard grass, trying to spin into a giggling fall just to watch the dizzy world keep on spinning. He spins beyond himself into a clarity of flow. And as his feet begin to slow, he notices the song tempo starting its close. The electro gyro man, Ladyland solo, winds down in slow mo to the last guitar note. His arms dropping at his sides, head bowed. The janitor's feet are hot stones, his head a cloud. He notices the crowd outside, smiling faces, flapping arms, laughter and applause. Little John claps behind him, wants to see it again, spun to purple haze. The janitor was born in the Appalachian Mountains. He knows if he can stop the world and start it spinning again, get everybody spinning at once, that something big could happen, something really big, maybe universal peace. One time he stared at the sun for 14 hours, and several times he's witnessed fireballs in the sky. He knows he's crazy, but he's not dangerous. Some scholars claim the greatest minds, often drunks, are insane. This hippie hillbilly custodian just quit, just quit drinking years ago, quit churches too, and now he spins. He spins for us all. It's great when life presents you with something like that. Exactly. You know, the hillbilly custodian is perfect. You know, it, it's it, he was. He, you know, I mean, he was just. Michael was such. A, is such. I, I'm assuming he's still with us. 
uh, such an exaggerated uh, visionary. I mean, he's on a different playing field than the majority of the people you run into. And that's life, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I read I read this comic strip this that pearls before swine thing here this last week and they went to the wise ass on the hill and I think the one asked the wise ass on the hill uh, the meaning of life or something and, and the wise ass said everybody's a weirdo and uh, and then and then there was a pause and he said some just hide it better than others. <laughs> I want to ask you one last thing that I just didn't think to ask sooner. When you're uh, going in and doing workshops with students, like or whatever, yeah, what would what would be your most um, important thing you'd like to tell them or have them to get from you know being with you, them trying to learn poetry? Well, I mean, I I I I, I tell them that that they are all poets that old joke about being a poet and you don't know it and all that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's very true. I, I, I tell them poetry is and what I love about poetry is it's freedom. It, it allows me the opportunity to do and say things that I just can't normally do in day to day walking around life and the stuff that goes in your head and it allows you to use your imagination. It allows you to use real things. It allows you to do nonsense. It allows you to do whatever the fuck you want to do. And I can't say that to them, of course, <laughs> unless I'm in a high school class, like a special writing class. But uh, I just tell them it's, it's, it's freedom. Enjoy yourself. Have fun. That's the most important thing. Or, right. or let it, it, because poetry, it just, I, I think poetry is, is, uh, is the greatest thing on earth, right? I mean, and, and if you I, I, if you bring yourself to a group of kids and you are honest with them, they respond. And once they once they discover that, if particularly if they write something that really is is poignant, it's really honest. Yeah. It's really like, whoa, right there. All the other kids in the room, and this may be often. This is the case. Oftentimes, it's not the it's not the cool kid. It's not, it's not the, 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 the one that's the, the best athlete or the, sh the sharpest, you know, crayon in the box who's getting all four point plus scores. Those kids, the ones that are quiet, the ones that are sitting in the back of the room, they get up and they read something and everybody else just goes. Yeah. There's a new respect. It's all about building community. I think, I think art and poetry is like social glue. We, that's that's the that's one of the most important things about the arts, I think, is that it, it brings us together. We recognize that we're all totally different, but we're all the same. That's the main thing. And so yeah. that's you know I give them I give them the cheerleading rah 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 and that kind of thing, and, and they just they feel like they can write and they do most Great. of them. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Mark. This has been really really good. No, I just gonna say it's my pleasure. All right. I'm Charlie Rossiter. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today, Mark Gibbons from Missoula, Montana. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time 
to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. 